you do, I ask you to turn in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to read the, read the full chapter there, 13 verses together, as we prepare ourselves for God's Word, to study God's Word this morning. Let us hear the Word of the Lord together. Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans or Gentiles. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Are you rather to mourn? Let him who has done these things be removed from among you. And though absent in body, I am present within spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has done such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, you are to deliver this man over to Satan for the, de- for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters, since then you would, have, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or idolater or viler or drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what, I've, what, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be, Thanks be to God indeed. Now already, if you've heard that passage, you're probably going, uh-oh. Right? Uh-oh. It's gonna be a, this is going uh, to be a fun passage to walk through this morning. Um, I always try to give people a disclaimer, especially when we come to hard passages like this, that one of the commitments of our church is expository preaching. And that's a big fancy word for we like to sequentially walk through the Word of God um, and we want to see Christ uh, illuminated from the script, from the text. And we want to see what God calls his church and his people to be in light of the word of God. And, um, and the reason why we go, you know, through books of the Bible here and preach through them and, and instead of just me coming up with whatever comes to my mind on Sunday morning and I try to staple a verse to it, that doesn't work. And I was telling our members class this morning, I don't have enough creativity I don't have enough wisdom to, to do that. I think God's done everything he needs for, uh, for his people within his word. And, and when, we, when we study it this way, it does a couple of things. One is it prevents me from thinking too highly of myself as the guy who does most of the preaching here. And two, it prevents me from, from skipping or sidestepping hard texts. And this is a hard text. And so what's going to happen the next couple of weeks is we're going to deal with this text in the, in the context of what it means to be a, a healthy church. And then next week, we're going to come back and just kind of expand a little bit more on it and talk a little about what church discipline is and why it matters in local church and why it's not like the Salem witch trials, right? Because I think a lot of people have this idea, oh, it's just people who are being judgmental and and they're just being overly hypocritical. And and, and that's really not the case at all. And we're going to see that hopefully in this text here this morning. Now, most of you guys who know me well know that I I, um, am kind of a, a church nerd, all right, I like ecclesiology. It's a big word. I'll come back and define it for you here in a minute. Um, I love studying what makes churches tick. 
I love studying what other traditions do, other denominations do. Uh, um, I, one of my favorite people in the entire world is a guy named Wes Brown. He's an Anglican at St. Patrick's here in town. Love that guy. We have a lot of fun conversations. I got Presbyterian friends. I got Catholic friends. I got Church of Christ friends. And we talk about all these differences about how we've come to these things. And we can agree to disagree on some of these things. Um, and so I love it. And, and, and a lot of my friends find me a little bit interesting in, in one sense because I tend to can enter into their kind of like world of talk, the words they use that are somewhat common to their own little tribes. And I can kind of get in there because I just, I love studying church history and practical theology because I think when the church is healthy and understands itself and what the Bible says about the church, it actually has an opportunity to be um, a, uh, um, something meaningful to the world. I really do. Now, the word ecclesiology, I mentioned it earlier, is, it shouldn't be an intimidating word. I'll tell you what it means. It comes from ecclesia, i.e. the church in Greek, or the gathered, gathering of God's people. It's the study of the church, or you might say the order of the church, or how the church is ordered. And so, um, and so if you've been around Grace Church a minute or two, you know that we take that kind of stuff seriously. If you've been in our membership class, if you're going through it right now, you know we've said it up front. We are big about this. We are we are. We, are, we want you to know why it's important and why you're part of something than just showing up and being in the room, that you're actually part of something living and active. I'm a trained Baptist minister. I have went to college. I've served in several churches. Um, over the 25 years I've been in ministry, both as an intern apprentice and as an ordained pastor. And I can say to you, as we launch into this text, the two things have, been, have often affected the church and whether it's being healthy and fruitful than, than, these, than anything else. Number one, does a church have a clear view of what the gospel is? What is the gospel? And frankly, what the gospel is not. A lot of times saying the gospel is, well, it's just a cleanup effort on our part. We, we do things and we make ourselves better by doing certain things, whether in our own efforts or some kind of religious activity, whatever it may be. Um, people do it in every tradition. We do it in Baptist life. We do it in in Baptist life, it's don't do, don't, was it don't, don't, uh, don't smoke, don't chew, don't date girls who do kind of thing, right? Um, and, but, you know, you have it in every tradition. But we, we don't believe that's the gospel. The gospel isn't your self-improvement project. The gospel is God's improvement, God's, God's saving you when you didn't deserve to be saved. And him doing everything needed through his son Jesus to do that. And so when a church has a clear of the gospel, that church has a better chance of being a healthy church. But the second thing is, is a clear understanding of what the church is. And oftentimes, and I've served in a lot of churches, guys, a lot of times the church just has no idea what it means to be the church, and an average member doesn't know what it means to be a part of a church, and they just get into it, and they think, well, it's just me showing up, listen to some guy yell at me for an hour, and we sing a bunch of songs, we have some potlucks every now and then, and that's what it means to be the church. It's not the church. It's not the church. Now, to help us understand it and to help us launch into this text, because I think this text that we're talking about, sin in the church, has everything to do with how we understand the church. Because if you don't get to church, you cannot possibly understand what, Roman, what uh, 1 Corinthians 5 is trying to say to us. If you don't understand the, 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 the importance of what it means to be the local church, you can't possibly see this right, and you're always going to read Paul wrong. I'm always going to read Paul wrong. This past week, as an example of that, um, I've been talking to my friend Wes over at, the, at St. Patrick's, and he's been keeping me informed. They have their big global gathering of all their bishops in, um, in Africa right now. And one of the major things that they are endeavoring to do there is to deal with um, 
some issues that have been coming out of the Church of England, and especially the Archbishop of Canterbury, who is the main leader of both the Church of England as well as, frankly, the whole global communion of, Ang- of Anglicans. And, um, and the reason why that's important is because since the beginning of Anglicanism, since the beginning of Church of England, before they split off in the Catholic Church, everything Anglican has been centered in England and centered in London. And so the decisions they're going to make, or the, actually they did make this week, are landmark because they basically are removing the archbishop from his leadership because of his endorsement of worldly things to be embraced in the local church there in England, in the Church of England, where especially like same-sex marriage or and putting um, you know uh, those who have uh, LGBTQ or whatever into office of the church and all that kind of stuff. And then global Anglicans have said this: we can't continue to endorse these kind of things when it's so clearly contrary to the scriptures. Now. The reason why that's important is when for, for so many, so long, the archbishop, whatever he said, goes. And so it doesn't just stay in London. So unlike Vegas, everything in London doesn't stay in London, right? And it affects all of the churches across the world. And so the global south of the Anglican tradition has said, no, no more, and then the American Anglican Church here, the ACNA, has said, no, no more, we're done. We, we have to recover the clarity of the gospel, and we have to recover the clarity of what the gospel does, i.e. being God's people, the church. And so whatever misunderstandings, and, they, and listen, I tell my friend Wes all the time, y'all got a lot of really strange words in your tradition, and I don't get it, but I think we're on the same page here. Because we believe ultimately this must guide what the church is, yes? And amen. Now, I say all of that to you this morning is because regardless of the differences that come up between traditions, Church of Christ, Baptist, Presbyterian, Catholics, uh, Anglicans, whatever it may be, um, we must all recognize what, that the church rises and falls as it understands itself in light of what the gospel is and what the gospel has done in our life. When we fail to remember that, we get into churches that begin to do all kinds of things that are beyond Scripture and, frankly, offer the world no hope. Absolutely no hope. So here's the main idea this morning that I'm going to flesh out in four points, okay? Very simple. Because, the seriousness of sin, because of the seriousness of sin, or you might even say the danger, dangerousness of sin, the church has, to, has an obligation to judge sin in the lives of its members. Now, that's going to sound really heavy right now, but I'm just going to ask for you to stick with me, okay? Um, because this is not an effort by your pastor to come in here and go, like, start kind of like needling you about all the little weird things you got going on in your life. Because you could do, easily do the same thing to me. Spend some time with me and you're going to find out, whoa, that guy's really off, right? Um, so here's what we've been the last couple weeks as we've been studying through 1 Corinthians. Again, we didn't come to this text um, willy-nilly, something I just picked out of thin air last week. It's something we've been walking through all the way through. So we've been in four chapters so far of 1 Corinthians over since the beginning of the year. And Paul has been addressing the serious issues that are in this Corinthian church that threaten to destroy the church if, they left, if they're left unchecked. And namely, there's lots of divisions that are rooted in pride and spiritual arrogance. And we talked about spiritual arrogance last week, and we'll probably touch on it just in a few minutes. And Paul says, without exclusion... The remedy for these ills in the church are, is Christ crucified and the wisdom of the cross and to embrace the folly of the cross for mankind. 
Like we don't like but the wisdom of the world doesn't hold out for us. The world says there's a lot of things that they say is good that are not good. And the wisdom of the world is not the wisdom that God calls his people to live under. We are, we are called to embrace the folly of the cross because let me tell you this right now. Not one of us would have written the Christian story the way that it is. Not one of us would have said, oh, we're the ones who look bad in this. Right? Not one of us would have done that because we're too prideful. And I stand as chief of center of that. Now, one of us would have written this up, but, but God himself chose to send his son Jesus to die on the cross for us, to substitute himself for us, to provide a way for us beyond ourselves so that we could be emptied of ourselves and be filled with Christ. And so that's what Paul's been dealing with in this church. And so Paul now turns the attention of these next couple of chapters, five and six, and, and before turning some practical questions towards the rest of the book we'll get into here in a few weeks, or actually after the end of the summer, and, and, and what we're going to deal with in these next couple of chapters is, one, the sin that has been accepted in the church that needs to be dealt with, that Paul wants to deal with, which is what we're going to deal with this morning. He's going to deal with lawsuits. Our brother Josh gets that one here in a couple weeks. Yeah, he's going to be excited about that. And then, and then, then we deal with sexual immorality in the church. So if you think that, the, that if you live in the way the world says, it's like, oh, you're just, like you're just inventing things. Well, no, the Bible clearly speaks to these things. And these are things that are really alive and a problem in the church. No church is perfect. No church is without sin. But he's saying we should not live as if we're blind to it either. So, again, and I just keep saying this and I want to make sure that you hear me. One of the benefits of expository preaching is it prevents me from having to sidestep hard issues. And it makes us have to take, come face to face with some things. It prevents me from cherry picking the Bible. This morning we're getting right into what Paul is and his logical sequence of thinking as we get into this. So three, four things we're going to look at this morning. Number one, the seriousness of sin in the life of the church. Two, the authority given to confront sin in the life of the church. Three, we're going to deal with the uh, gospel or the biblical foundations for dealing with sin in the church and why it needs to be rid of. And then last, the, the obligation of the church to judge sin. And we'll talk about that one both at the end and in our time next week to kind of overflow that, okay? So let's look here again for our first point. Seriousness of sin in the life of the church. Here's what Paul says. Actually, it's been reported of you that sexual morality among you is of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. Um, and the word pagans there would be Gentiles perhaps as well. For a man, and his father, a man has his father's wife. And he says there, and you, church, are arrogant. You should mourn. You shouldn't be arrogant. You should be blind. You should mourn this. Let him be removed from among you. And so let's just talk about what's happening here. There's a serious sin, sexual sin in the life of the church. And um, so much so that, this, the Paul, that Paul's going to come back to this topic again at the end of chapter 6. So we don't really need to deal with this right now. Some of you are going, whew, all right. All right, we'll deal with that in a couple weeks. But that's not the point of this text. As, as serious as the sin is, what the point of this text is, is sin in the church. That's just being blindly looked past. But let's just talk about what's happening here for a moment. Um, what's important to notice is that the, serious, the sin is so serious that even outsiders, even those who are not Christians, who are, Paul says, pagans or Gentiles, they know something's wrong with this. That should tell you something, right? If the world says, well, that's weird, then maybe, 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 maybe we should pay attention to, to that. So they're outside the covenant community of, of God's people, um, it, what it should tell us is that even in the consciences of men who are outside of Christ, God has given them in their conscience 
um, the, 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 the sense of what is right and wrong, that the law of God, the precepts of God are written on every man's heart, regardless if they accept Christ or accept the church or not. This is what Paul says in chapter, uh, verse, uh, Romans chapter 4, verse 14 and 16. He says, that is why it depends on faith in order to, um, in order that, I'm sorry, I'm actually in the wrong, I'm 2, 14 through 16, sorry. Tells you why I need to get new glasses. For when Gentiles when, um, who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men's in by Christ Jesus. So in other words, what we're seeing here is that if, if even the pagans, if even the Gentiles see this, there's something that God's written on their heart that says, yeah, that's not right. That's not the way this, this, this young man should not be having uh, a relationship with his stepmother. And, and, and so that's, there's something wrong with that. Now, again, it's an incestuous relationship. I'm going to go into a lot of detail there, but it's, with, it's not with his mom. It's with his stepmom, um, not his bio mom. Uh, many times when men would remarry after their first wife, they would marry much younger women. It's not very, un, un, it's very, not very different today, unfortunately. And they married much younger women. And sometimes those women would be very so much similar age to their original children. And therefore, the pheromones start going off, right? It just, it's, right? It's just something's happening here. But probably one of the other theories that's going on here is that this is beyond just a, a romantic uh, tryst. That this is probably a son protecting his inheritance, because back then, if his father died, his stepmother would have rights to the inheritance and she could run off with it. And so he's maintaining a relationship with her, an illicit relationship with her, so that he could protect his interest in the, um, affair, the inheritance of his father. There could be a lot of different reasons why. Lots of commentators ex- try to get into this. But, the, but here's the point. Here's the primary concern. Because Paul says one verse there, and then he gets into the rest of the, rest of the, verse, the, rest of the passage is about how the church is dealing with it. He says, primary concerns is complacency. Complacency in the church with dealing with sin. And Paul pulls no punches here. He says, you're arrogant. You should mourn. Um, Last week we talked about spiritual arrogance. And you remember that we talked about the spiritual arrogance that pride had, of pride that had root, was rooted in the Corinthian heart and they had these misaligned expectations of what it meant to be Christian. So if you're a Christian and you did good things, well, then you expected God to give you good things. And that's what Christian life is, right? Happy, wealthy, and wise, right? That kind of mentality. And so the Corinthian church kind of embodied that. And they were like, and that's why they really had a hard time with Paul because Paul was suffering all the time. And a lot of the apostles were suffering all the time. And, and it seemed like, well, wait a minute. If there's no, ultimately the end is not my happiness. Well, then the, these guys must be getting it wrong. And that's been the heart of the division up until this point. That spiritual arrogance blinded them from the seriousness of sin's effects in their life because they were focused on everything else around them about their own experience. So Paul reproves this church for their spiritual arrogance. And he says, remove this one who has done this. And he's, he has the Old Testament in mind here. Deuteronomy specifically, um, Deuteronomy 27, 20, cursed is the man who sleeps with his father's wife. Deuteronomy 23, 1, a man is not to marry his father's wife. Deuteronomy 22, 4, if a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, he must purge the evil from Israel. 
It is likely Deuteronomy 22:24 that one I just read is what Paul instructs the church to do in verse 13 at the end when we'll come back to that. It's a purge this evil from among you. And so what Paul is saying here is very clearly, you cannot exist to be a healthy church. You cannot exist to be a church that has the power and preach the power of the gospel if you will turn a blind eye to sin in your own ranks. See, the easy thing for us to do is just always point our finger at what's going on out there, but not to look at the plank in our own eye. And Paul is calling the church to look at the plank in their own eye. And so then what he does in the second point is he says, now deal with it. And he, he says, you've got authority to confront sin in the life of the church. Look, it says in verse 3 through 5, For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I am already pronounced judgment of the one who has done such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and my spirit is present, with the power of our, of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of salvation, or day of the Lord. There's two things out of this passage I think are very interesting. Number one, that the church has been given apostolic authority to confront sin. It's very clear here. Paul says, I'm with you, whether I'm with you in presence or not. You stand on the teaching that I've transmitted to you. And when you gather as a church, i.e. the ecclesia, when we gather as the church, you are to deal with sin. That's why members meetings are so important here in our church. Because it's in that moment that if people are in, in a heart place or they've wandered, we want to lovingly and care for them, pull them back in to show them how they were to trust Jesus rather than their own uh, lives or the way that they're dealing with it in other ways, in sinful ways. And so Paul is given, because Paul is an apostle and his teaching is emphatically authoritative for all the church, the church, the teaching that he has is authoritative. The church needs to stand on that apostolic authority and friends, again, this is incidentally why I am a congregationalist, meaning this church is its own entity. We don't rise to authority above us. Because at the end of the day, he says the gathered church, when you're gathered, you do these things. You are, you are to, you're to walk with one another. You're to, to discipline. And discipline, by the way, has two sides. There's formative discipline, which we do by preaching the word, teaching the word, going to classes, loving and caring for each other. That's formative discipline. By, by, if you're a member of this church, by, by necessity, if you're a member of this church, you're doing church discipline right now because you're disciplining yourselves to be under God's word and to teach one another God's word. And this is part of it, but there's corrective discipline where you sometimes have to correct brothers and sisters who have wandered a little bit or sometimes wander greatly. And so again, that's why I'm such a committed like Baptist in that sense, not because you know, I didn't get trained properly or whatever. It's because ultimately it's like the authority should be in the church to deal with loving the brothers and sisters back to Christ. I think Paul makes a wonderful example of that here, right here in verses 3 and 4. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord, you are to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. He's given the church authority to deal with sin in their church. He wasn't waiting for the local bishop to roll in. Right? He wasn't looking for, like our Presbyterian friends, like a council of elders above the church to deal with this issue. And, that, and listen, we can disagree and agree and disagree on these things. I, I, I literally have wonderful conversations about these things. That's, I'm just telling you what I have come to the conclusion about. And I think it's pretty simple from Scripture personally. Um, we'll tease out more of this next week, okay? But the one key, the, the key uh, one of the keys, key ways we can see or validate the repentance of a believer is the local church. When someone is found in sin 
and they always stand outside the church, there's no means by which God has ordained in Scripture other than the church to evaluate to some degree through the Spirit whether or not that person's repentance is legit. It doesn't mean we're going to get it right or wrong. Sometimes we're going to get it wrong. But God wants us to be part of churches sitting in under not, not under my authority or the elders' authority, but under the authority of this church, who by which gives me and the elders responsibility to, to care for these things so that we live as a people of wholeness and people of dependency on one another, people of joy, people of transparency. That's one of the things I want to make sure we're clear about. Like, it should, like if we find ourselves in difficult places of sin, this is a messy people. We are, we've tried, we've said this many times. It's, it's, there's nothing that should shame you here. We're not shaming you into repentance, into life change. We're going to grace you into it. It's what the church membership should do. Now, sometimes grace comes hard. And if someone's got a hard heart in their sin and they don't want to repent of it. But one of the key ways we know if people are really repenting is if they're in the context of a church and, and receiving the love and care of the body and, 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 and receiving the counsel of the body as well as the elders and leaders and deacons of this, of this church or any other church they may be a part of. But the second thing here that's interesting here is that he says, deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that the spirit may be, his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Um, just notice that what he's doing here is that it's for his salvation, not his condemnation. See, some people will read this text and they'll think, oh, you're just being judgmental. You think you're holier than thou. No, Cabal says clearly you are to deliver him to Satan for the destruction of his what? Flesh. In other words, that the old man would be killed and that he might be saved. He might be renewed. He might find life afresh again in Christ. Not that he's lost his salvation per se, but that he might be, find the joy of the Lord. So this text might sound ominous, right? It might sound like, well, okay, you're throwing a guy out. Again, Salem rich trials kind of thing. Um, but, the, but the church is clearly not called to be sin hunters. It's not, the elders are not called to be sin hunters. It's not my job or the elders' job to, to, to root out every little possible sin that could be in this church. Like right now, there are sinners sitting in this room right now who struggle with sin probably even this morning in some capacity. That's not, what we're, that's not what Paul has in view here. And it's not in view that there's not going to be people who struggle with sin in the church. What's in view is that we don't turn a blind eye to sin and we don't allow unrepentant sin to continue to go unchecked in the church. Do you see the difference? That's the difference here. Every person in here has varying levels of struggle with sin. But it's the context of unrepentant sin that's the problem. And frankly, the indifference of the church to deal with sin. Yes? What Paul has in view here is the ultimate faith and repentance of this man so that he finds fullness in, life, in his life in Christ. That's got to always be our game. That's got to be always be our, our, our objective. That when we find someone who's struggling and in a difficult place, that we want them to see the joy of the Lord again. And sometimes to do that, they have to come face to face with their own destruction. I bet some of us have been there, right? Like you had to come face to face with the hardest things before, before you realized, I had to change. I've been there. And God in his mercy showed me something better. So you and I are not going to be justified 
by our restoration efforts. You're not going to be justified just simply because you go and you realize you're standing and you're going to clean yourself up. No. When we are forced to come face to face with our sin, we will see the beauty of Christ who stood in our place on that cross and we'll revel in it. We'll revel in it. And so then Paul continues his thinking here, and this goes into our third point, and he shows them why rooting sin out of the church is such a big deal, and he grounds it in the Bible, particularly the Old Testament. Your boasting, he says in verse 6, is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been crucified. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of insincerity and truth. So Paul again leans in on his training as a former Pharisee and his knowledge of the Old Testament. And he says, and he shows them from all that old training that how all of that points to Jesus. And so what he's doing is he's laying down um, from the Passover. Most of us know what the Passover is. A celebration in Jewish culture. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread, he's laying this down as a foundation for understanding why sin's a problem in the church. Exodus 12 and 13 instruct the Israelites to remove all leaven from their homes before Passover or for the Feast of Unleavened Bread and that none should be consumed. Hence, leaven for the Old Testament, for the Jewish um, Old Testament uh, Israelite was to instruct, it, it, it was to represent the evil. It represented that which was corrupting, that which was um, distorting. And thus, if the yeast remained in the lump of dough, it would pervade the whole lump itself. Now, isn't it interesting how he did that right as we go into Passover? Because it represents in Passover the people being cleansed by the action of what happens at Passover. And who is the greatest Passover lamb of all time? Christ. So, in other words, Christians are to work, to live, to work hard at, not for their salvation, to root out sin in their lives because Christ is their Passover lamb. He says it very clearly here. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. In other words, you become what you already are. You are what you already are because Christ made you what you already are. And because you already are what you are, you like this, right? Right? Become what you are. Work hard. Like, root out sin. Like, let sin not rule in your bodies, Paul says. See, Paul's concern is less about the individual here, this man, but more about how sin affects the church. Since Christ has been offered as that final Passover sacrifice, the church should work to cleanse out the old leaven of their former lives and live as a new people who have been redeemed by Jesus. Again, notice the grounds, uh, what grounds the imperative to rid the church of unrepentant sin. Is it not the indicative that they are in Christ? Indicative means who you are, what you are. The imperative comes out of what you already are. You don't clean up your life so that you make yourselves right with God because you cannot clean yourself enough. I can't clean myself enough. But praise be to God, he has made me who I am because of his work of his son. And because of the spirit in me, I don't have to live ashamed. I can live in, transform I can live in transparency and I can live in, and I can fight and attack sin to the best 
um, of my ability, but particularly through the Holy Spirit working in me. See, he's not suggesting that Christians are called to, I'm going to keep on hammering this point, to earn your salvation through your repentance. He's not calling you to maintain your salvation by certain activities or living or kind of living, but to live as the new people that you already are. Huge truth for the Christian life, friends. If you're struggling with sin this morning, it's likely because you keep on looking at the same means to fix it, which is you, and it'll never be enough, and you will never be enough. Only Christ is enough. The point is simple. The people of God are called to stand as a display of God's mercy, a display of God's grace in the world, to show forth the power of the Holy Spirit that works within us so that we see that progressive change and transformation in our lives. And so when he says there in verse 8 to, to call and celebrate the festival, what, what is he saying? He's saying celebrate the joy of the work of God in you and in me and live in faith and repentance all your days, striving for the glory of God through, the, through our good works. That's what Ephesians 2.10 says. You notice that in 2.10, if you know Ephesians 2, you can flip around if you want to. I'll be there just for a moment. Um, but he says there, um, but God, verse four, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast, but listen, verse 10, for we are the workmanship uh, uh, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Did you see what he did there? He says, I've done this. I'm creating you a new man. Now walk like it. Not in your own power, not in your own strength, but in the love of God. So that leads us to our last point. Because of all that, we get back to the central thing here. Paul says, put this man out. You're, the church has an obligation to judge sin in the life of the church. I wrote you in this letter not to associate with the sexual immoral people. Look at verse 10. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy of the swindlers or the idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But no, now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater or a baller, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person among you. See, the church's job is not to disassociate with people outside the church. So again, I think this is what we do often. I think we become really good at this. We begin to go, it's easy to like, you know, take aim at everyone outside the church because they don't act and behave. That's easy, that's easy target, guys. And Paul says here, I didn't, because he wrote them a letter and apparently they misunderstood their letter. And they said, you know, purge the evil man from you. Okay, great. We're, we're just going to separate ourselves from the world. So you got those kinds of Christians out there. That's not what we're called to do. You're called to go into the world, to be light, salt and light to the world and love unbelievers and, and show them the truth and be gentle and be gracious to them, but point them to the truth. What he's not saying here is that 
it's not saying here is that the, that the church is not called to interact with the world or proclaim the goodness of God's law to the world because it's not judgmental to tell the truth to people. What he is saying here is, you know, you probably heard outsiders say something like, look at those judgmental Christians. I had someone recently tell me of uh, a niece who said that Christianity is a hateful religion. Um, and you hear that a lot out there. Look at all those judgmental Christians who are holier than thou. And let me just say this plainly. The church is not a holy people. And if you've walked in here this morning thinking you're holy, you're not. Surprise. (laughs) You're not. I'm not. I didn't walk in here prepared for this pulpit simply because I lived a a holy life for you this morning. It's not how it works. But what, what happens so many times is that what Paul's saying here is the church shouldn't judge non-believers or non-Christians in such a way as to in such a way that they are not able to see the glory of Jesus. We live among them, yes, and tell the truth among them, and we want to show them this in some capacity. But as outs, as insiders, we want I say insiders. That sounds weird. I don't want to mean it that way. But you know, Christians and non-Christians, we want to have the opportunity to display the profound goodness of the gospel to everyone. I want to say something right now, but I'm not going to because it might offend some of you guys, but I'm not going to do it. Maybe later. All right, so, but, but this is what we'll find people saying sometimes. See, the, the church shouldn't judge them, but we should display the goodness of God. Don't, don't be surprised when non-Christians are non-Christians. And don't be surprised when non-Christians have values that are non-Christian values. It's an easy target. No, Paul says here, no, 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 no. You deal with your inside. You do the house first. Get your household in order, church. Right? The church's job is to judge sin in the church. So as much as you might find that person who will look at you who's not a Christian and say, you're just being judgmental, you'll likely meet that person in the church as well. And here's what they'll say. Well, aren't we all just sinners? You've heard that? I've said it. You've said it. And it's not... It's not wrong. The problem is that there's clearly God calls the church to judge sin in its ranks. I mean, Paul does it right here. But more, more than that, the assumption is that, 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 is, um, that this is implying is that there's some council in the church that's out there looking to hunt out sin. They're like ice for illegal immigrants, Right? They feel like that's our job. That's not our job. And the elders, are, I promise you, we are not doing that. We don't go up here every Sunday, every, every other Wednesday and go, all right, who's the ones we got to go target today? That's not how it works. Christians exist now in this age both as sinner and saint. We, that completion of that old man dying won't come until Jesus returns. There's no such thing as a Sinless Christian, but the church is called to acknowledge their sin. Why? Because we want to display before the world that we will not be ruled by it. We're ruled by Jesus. We're called to acknowledge our sin, to repent of our sin, to, and particularly do this in a local congregation, to pursue righteousness through the aid of the Holy Spirit. These are the things the church is called to do. 
And, and what we're going to deal with and should deal with is unrepentant sin. And again, we'll deal into this deeper next week um, as we get into a, a larger picture of Scripture when it comes to this issue. But let me just conclude with three rapid-fire thoughts, and then we're going to go to the Lord's table, okay? Sin in the church is serious, number one, and it will affect the vitality and power of the church if left unchecked. Sin in the church is serious, and it will affect the vitality and the power of the church if left unchecked. Number two, the church is a divinely called institution to deal with sin among its members. For love's sake. For grace. And three, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the compelling reason why we do so. What he's accomplished for us. What will happen for those of us when we see glory and we see the beauty of all that Christ has accomplished, things that we, can, we have not seen here in this life. They will come visible. And so the gospel of Jesus should be the compelling reason why we take sin seriously in the church and call ourselves out of it. Let's pray. Father, help us this morning as we...